Section 10 of Early Kings of Norway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Early Kings of Norway by Thomas Carlyle. Section 10. Chapters 14, 15, and 16. Chapter 14. Sverer and Descendants to Hakon the Old. The end of it was, or rather the first abatement, and beginnings of the end, that when all this had gone on ever worsening for some forty years or so, one Sverer, A.D. 1177, at the head of an armed mob of poor people called Birkebeins, came upon the scene. A strange enough figure in history, this Sverer and his Birkebeins, at first a mere mockery and dismal laughing-stock to the enlightened Norway public, Nevertheless, by unheard-of fighting, hungering, exertion, and endurance, Sverer, after ten years of such a death-wrestle against men and things, got himself accepted as king, and by wonderful expenditure of ingenuity, common cunning, unctuous parliamentary eloquence, or almost popular preaching, and it must be owned, general human faculty and valor, or value, in the overclouded and distorted state, did victoriously continue such and founded a new dynasty in Norway, which ended only with Norway's separate existence, after near three hundred years. This Sverer called himself a son of Harold Rymouth, but was in reality the son of a poor comb-maker in some little town of Norway, nothing heard of sonship to Rymouth till after good success otherwise. His Birkebeins, that is to say, birch-legs, the poor rebellious wretches having taken to the woods, and been obliged, besides their intolerable scarcity of food, to thatch their bodies from the cold with whatever covering could be got, and their legs especially with birch-bark, sad species of fleecy hosiery, whence their nickname, his Birkebeins I guess always to have been a kind of Norse jackery, desperate rising of thralls and indigent people, driven mad by their unendurable sufferings and famishings, there's the deepest stratum of misery, and the densest and heaviest, in this general misery of Norway, which had lasted towards the third generation, and looked as if it would last for ever, whereupon they had risen proclaiming in this famous dumb manner, unintelligible except to heaven, that the same could not, nor would not, be endured any longer. And, by their sphearer, strange to say, they did attain a kind of permanent success, and, from being a dismal laughing-stock in Norway, came to be important, and, for a time, all important there. Their opposition nicknames, Baglers, from Bagal, Bacalus, Bishop Staff, Bishop Nicholas being chief leader, Gold-legs, and the like obscure terms, for there was still a considerable course of counterfighting ahead, and especially of counter-nicknaming, I take to have meant in Norse prefigurement seven centuries ago, bloated aristocracy, tyrannous bourgeoisie, till in the next century these rents were closed again. King Sverer, not himself bred to comb-making, had, in his fifth year, gone to an uncle, bishop in the Faroe Islands, and got some considerable education from him, with a view to priesthood on the part of Sverer. But, not liking that career, Sverer had fled and smuggled himself over to the Birkebeins, who, noticing the learned tongue and other miraculous qualities of the man, proposed to make him captain of them, and even threatened to kill him if he would not accept, which, thus, at the sword's point, as Ferrer says, he was obliged to do. It was after this that he thought of becoming son of Rymouth and other high things. His Birkebeins and he certainly had a talent of campaigning which has hardly ever been equalled. 
They fought like devils against any odds of number, and before battle they have been known to march six days together without food, except, perhaps, the inner barks of trees, and in such clothing and shoeing as mere birch-bark. At one time, somewhere in the Dover field, there was serious counsel held among them whether they should not all, as one man, leap down into the frozen gulfs and precipices, or at once massacre one another wholly, and so finish. Of their conduct in battle, fiercer than that of Beresarks, where was there ever seen the parallel? In truth, they are a dim, strange object to me, in that black time, wondrously bringing light into it withal, and proved to be, under such unexpected circumstances, the beginning of better days. Of Sverer's public speeches there still exist authentic specimens, wonderful indeed, and much characteristic of such a Sverer. A comb-maker king, evidently meaning several good and solid things, and affecting them too, athwart such an element of Norwegian chaos come again. His descendants and successors were a comparatively respectable kin. The last and greatest of them I shall mention is Hakon the Seventh, or Hakon the Old, whose fame is still lively among us, from the Battle of Largs at least. Chapter 15. Hakon the Old at Largs. In the Norse annals our famous Battle of Largs makes small figure, or almost none at all, among Hakon's battles and feats. They do say, indeed, those Norse annalists, that the King of Scotland, Alexander the Third, who had such a fate among the crags about Kinghorn in time coming, was very anxious to purchase from King Hakon his sovereignty of the Western Isles, but that Hakon pointedly refused, and at length, being again importuned and bothered on the business, decided on giving a refusal that could not be mistaken. Decided, namely, to go with the big expedition, and look thoroughly into that wing of his dominions, where no doubt much has fallen awry since Magnus Barefoot's grand visit thither, and seems to be inviting the cupidity of bad neighbours. All this we will put right again, thinks Hakon, and gird it up into a safe and defensive posture, adjusting and rectifying among his Hebrides as he went along, and landing withal on the Scotch coast to plunder and punish as he thought fit. The Scots say he had claimed of them Aaron, Bute, and the two Cumbrays, given my ancestors by Donald Bain, said Hakon, to the amazement of the Scots, as a part of the Sudoro, Southern Isles, so far from selling that fine kingdom, and that it was, after the taking, both Aaron and Bute that he made his descent at Largs. Of Largs there is no mention, whatever, in Norse books. But beyond any doubt, such is the other evidence, Hakon did land there, land and fight, not conquering, probably rather beaten, and very certainly retiring to his ships, as in either case he behooved to do. It is further certain he was dreadfully maltreated by the weather on those wild coasts, and altogether creditable, as the Scotch records bear, that he was so at Largs very specially. The Norse records or sagas say merely he lost many of his ships by the tempest, and many of his men by landing fighting in various ports, tacitly including Largs, no doubt, which was the last of these misfortunes to him. In the battle here he lost fifteen thousand men, say the Scots, we five thousand. Divide these numbers by ten, and the excellently brief and lucid Scottish summary by Buchanan may be taken as the approximately true and exact. Date of the battle is A.D. 1263. To this day, on a little plain to the south of the village, now town, of Largs, in Ayrshire, there are seen stone carns and monumental heaps, and, until within a century ago, one huge, solitary, upright stone, 
still mutely testifying to a battle there, altogether clearly to this battle of King Hakon's, who, by the Norse records, too, was in these neighborhoods at that same date, and evidently in an aggressive, high kind of humor. For while his ships and army were doubling the mull of Cantire, he had his own boat set on wheels, and therein, splendidly enough, had himself drawn across the promontory at a flatter part, no doubt with horns sounding, banners waving. All to the left of me is mine in Norway's, exclaimed Hakon, in his triumphant boat progress, which such disasters soon followed. Hakon gathered his wrecks together, and sorrowfully made for Orkney. It is possible enough, as our guide-books now say, he may have gone by Ionia, Mull, and the narrow seas inside of Skye, and that the Kyle Aachen, favorably known to sea-bathers in that region, may actually mean the Kyle, narrow strait, of Hakon, where Hakon may have dropped anchor, and rested for a little while in smooth water and beautiful environment, safe from equinoctial storms. But poor Hakon's heart was now broken. He went to Orkney, died there in the winter, never beholding Norway more. He it was who got to Iceland, which had been a republic for four centuries, united to his kingdom of Norway, a long and intricate operation, much presided over by our Snorro Sturluson, so often quoted here, who indeed lost his life by assassination from his sons-in-law, and out of great wealth sank at once into poverty of zero, one midnight in his own cellar, in the course of that bad business. Hakon was a great politician in his time, and succeeded in many things before he lost Largs. Snorro's death by murder had happened about twenty years before Hakon's by broken heart. He is called Hakon the Old, though one finds his age was but fifty-nine, probably a longish life for a Norway king. Snorro's narrative ceases when Snorro himself was born, at the threshold of King Sverrir, of whose exploits and doubtful birth it is guessed by some that Snorro willingly forbore to speak in the hearing of such a Hakon. CHAPTER Sixteen, EPILOGUE Harfagr's kindred lasted some three centuries in Norway. Sverrir's lasted into its third century there. How long after this, among the neighboring kinships, I did not inquire, for, by regal affinities, consanguinities, and unexpected chances and changes, the three Scandinavian kingdoms fell all peaceably together under Queen Margaret, of the Kalmar Union, A.D. 1397, and Norway, incorporated now with Denmark, needed no more kings. The history of these Harfagers has awakened in me many thoughts, of despotism and democracy, arbitrary government by one and self-government, which means no government or anarchy by all, of dictatorship with many faults, and universal suffrage with little possibility of any virtue. For the contrast between Olaf Tryggvason and a universal suffrage parliament or an imperial copper captain has, in these nine centuries, grown to be very great. And the eternal providence that guides all this, and produces alike these entities with their epochs, is not its course still through the great deep? Does it not speak to us if we have ears? Here, clothed in stormy enough passage and instincts, unconscious of any aim but their own satisfaction, is the blessed beginning of human order, regulation, and real government. There, clothed in a highly different, but again suitable garniture of passions, instincts, and equally unconscious as to real aim, is the accursed-looking ending, temporary ending, of order, regulation, and government, very dismal to the sane onlooker for the time being, not dismal to him otherwise. 
his hope, too, being steadfast. But here, at any rate, in this poor Norse theatre, one looks with interest on the first transformation, so mysterious and abstruse, of human chaos into something of articulate cosmos, witnesses the wild and strange birth-pangs of human society, and reflects that without something similar, little as men expect such now, no cosmos of human society ever was got into existence, nor can ever again be. The violences, fightings, crimes, ah, yes, these seldom fail, and they are very lamentable. But always, too, among those old populations, there was one saving element, the now want of which, especially the unlamented want, transcends all lamentation. Here is one of these strange, piercing, winged words of Ruskin, which has in it a terrible truth for us in these epochs now come. My friends, the follies of modern liberalism, many and great though they be, are practically summed in this denial or neglect of the quality and intrinsic value of things. Its rectangular beatitudes and spherical benevolences, theology of universal indulgence, and jurisprudence which will hang no rogues, mean, one and all of them, in the root, incapacity of discerning, or refusal to discern, worth and unworth in anything, and least of all in man." whereas nature and heaven command you, at your peril, to discern worth from unworth in everything, and most of all in man. Your main problem is that ancient and trite one, who is best man, and the fates forgive much, forgive the wildest, fiercest, cruelest experiments, if fairly made for the determination of that. Theft and blood-guiltiness are not pleasing in their sight, Yet the favoring powers of the spiritual and material world will confirm to you your stolen goods, and their noblest voices will applaud the lifting of your spear, and rehearse the sculpture of your shield, if only your robbing and slaying have been in fair arbitrament of that question, who is best man? But if you refuse such an inquiry, and maintain every man for his neighbor's match, if you give vote to the simple and liberty to the vile, the powers of those spiritual and material worlds in due time present you inevitably with the same problem, soluble now only wrong side upwards, and your robbing and slaying must be done then to find out who is worst man, which in so wide an order of merit is indeed not easy, but a complete Tammany ring and lowest circle in the inferno of worst you are sure to find and be governed by. All readers will admit that there was something naturally royal in these Harfager kings. A wildly great kind of kindred counts in it two heroes of a high, or almost highest, type, the first two Olafs, Trygvesen and the Saint. And the view of them withal, as we chance to have it, I have often thought, how essentially Homeric it was. Indeed, what is Homer himself but the rhapsody of five centuries of Greek skalds and wandering ballad-singers, done, i.e., stitched together, by somebody more musical than Snorro was. Olaf Trygvesen and Olaf Saint pleased me quite as well in their prosaic form, offering me the truth of them as if seen in their real lineaments by some marvellous opening, through the art of Snorro, across the black strata of the ages. Too high, almost among the highest sons of nature, seen as they veritably were, fairly comparable or superior to godlike Achilles, goddess-wounding Diomedes, much more to the two Atredi, regulators of the peoples. I have also thought often what a book might be made of Snorro, did there but arise a man furnished with due literary insight, and indefatigable diligence, 
who faithfully acquainting himself with the topography, the monumental relics, and illustrative actualities of Norway, carefully scanning the best testimonies as to place and time which that country can still give him, carefully the best collateral records and chronologies of other countries, and who, himself possessing the highest faculty of a poet, could, abridging, arranging, elucidating, reduce Snorro to a polished cosmic state, unweariedly purging away his much chaotic matter. A modern, highest kind of poet, capable of unlimited slavish labor withal, who I fear is not soon to be expected in this world, or likely to find his task in the Heimskringla if he did appear here. End of section 10, chapters 14, 15, and 16. End of Early Kings of Norway.